I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Grammy-nominated Japanese-American violinist Midori is a visionary artist, activist, and educator. She's been performing since her debut at the age of 11, which means she's been practicing for most of her life, time she considers very well spent. I think practice provided for me my own world that I could own, that I could be myself, and really feel like it was my life. And it wasn't that the violin was my life, but I found my life by having practice of violin. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. It's great to talk to you. You know, we're the same age, and I've been aware of your career almost my entire life, which means you started very early. By the time you were 14 you already had a full-blown recording and performing career. As a young child, did you have a sense that this was an extraordinary existence? I think that when I was first performing, I was grateful for the opportunity. I loved to perform. I would say that was really the most important and the most dominating feeling that I took out of those years to feel so much um, freedom and feeling liberated as I was on stage. I made my debut when I was 10 years old uh, and just went on doing it because I loved it. But it was in my early 20s that I decided that I wanted to actually pursue a career in music as a performer. And at that point, I became much more conscious of the responsibilities uh, being on stage, performing, preparing, rehearsing, uh, the professional side of things. So, um, 
you know, that's that's a decision that I made consciously. I was performing, but to pursue it as a career was a conscious decision that I made. And I'm extremely glad that I have taken that decision. Right. And in taking the responsibility for your own career, going from a child performer, essentially being told what to do, to taking the responsibility for yourself, did that change music making for you at all? Did that change what performance felt like? I think in terms of the music making, it didn't make a difference. I've always loved it. I love it still. I love that stepping out onto the stage. The whole thing about being backstage, being in the dressing room, that's where my life is. And that hasn't changed, but it's all the other things that come with it, the responsibilities, communication, correspondences, how I actually utilize music and these opportunities that I'm given to further my cause. This was very important, and it is actually still very important. And the ability that the music has, the capacity the music has to bring people together, and also to me now to give me access to people. Uh, This is for me what makes my career so rewarding, interesting, for which I'm grateful. Since you started so young and were so successful early, you've always had a life in music. At what point along the way did the importance of music in terms of the connection with people that you're talking about, when did that reveal itself to you as a child? It's not something that overnight I came to realize. It's an evolution. It's a combination of many things. It's experiences, it's environment, it's what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've observed, what I was told, role models, family influences. And I don't particularly come from a musical family. My mother is a violinist, but besides my mother, no one really had music as a profession. Nonetheless, when I was growing up, I observed them through their professions, their careers, that they were finding ways to connect Mm. with the community through whatever they were doing professionally. And so uh, music just happened to be, at that point, um, the means with which I could connect. Then I was influenced also by people like Isaac Stern, who was my mentor, people like Bernstein that... I was exposed to his energies, his ideas, and his person. So without knowing really concretely, I was kind of breathing in this this idea and observing people who were dedicating and committing themselves to better whatever that mission was for that person, being an advocate for the arts, um, being an activist, and bringing music to those that actually might not have had an opportunity otherwise. You know, th- this, this was how I was growing up. When you were touring with Leonard Bernstein, that was around 12 and 13 years old, right? That's correct. So what was it like to perform with him at 12 years old? Like, do you get how amazing Bernstein 
is when you're performing with him when you're a child? Or is it just now upon reflection on his legacy that you were like, I, I did that. I was there with him performing. And that's amazing. I think as a child, I was in awe. Yeah. Of course, there was something that really made me mesmerized listening to him, watching him, uh, just being in his presence. There was a whole aura. Uh, there was a whole positive energy, an incredible energy, a magical energy, actually. Um, that I knew. I probably couldn't put a finger on it at that point, but there was something very, very spectacular. Mm. When you started the violin, it only took you a few years to accomplish a level of technical and musical ability that most people can only dream of achieving. So naturally you're labeled as this child prodigy and it's just assumed that you were born with this gift and this talent. But at the same time, you have a famously rigorous work ethic. You've practiced hard to attain and maintain this level of mastery of the violin. So I couldn't imagine a better person to answer this question. Where does talent and hard work intersect? Is one factor more important than the other? Could you have reached the level that you've achieved without a potent combination of the two? That's a very difficult question. I once heard somebody say that having that curiosity, having that discipline, having that desire to want to spend that much time to practice, and to excel on that particular art or instrument is also part of that talent. It's a talent in itself. It's a quote. You know, it's not what I said. You know, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not the person saying it. But it's interesting, and I think there's a lot of truth in, it, in that. I actually always love to practice. And again, at that point when I was practicing, I don't think I would have explained it that way. I don't think I would have known how to explain it, but I think practice provided for me my own world that I could own, that I could be myself, that I can discover myself and really, really feel like it was my life. And it wasn't that the violin was my life, but I found my life by having practice a violin because it was my own. You know, when you're talking about creating a world for yourself. For most kids, that means playing with toys alone in the corner and playing with fire trucks or dolls or whatever and kind of envisioning this world and living within it. But for you, that was, that was practice. That was the violin. It was. And it was something that I now, in retrospect, realize I enjoyed. And there were so many things that made me curious through the violin, I would say, that history, and not just biographies of composers, but the history that went around. Psychology, why certain notes made you feel a certain way, but that it wasn't always the same. Why? Why certain pieces, you know, were difficult, and how that made me feel, but then I would, I would organize myself to accomplish, to achieve that hurdle of the difficulty of that piece. What I could actually 
convey, figuring out what I would like to convey through music, all these things. It was really such an interesting, rewarding way to spend time. So just yesterday, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a violinist, told her that I'd be speaking with you today. And she told me about when you played a concerto with her orchestra and how blown away she was by your performance, but even more so that after the performance, she heard a violinist practicing a concerto in the hall only to find out that it was you. Do you normally practice after performances? So over the years, I... I grew to understand when I actually would do my best practicing or at better times of the day um, when I would actually get good practicing done. After concerts is one of the best times. My mind is clear. Uh, I'm warmed up. And after the concert also serves a little bit for me as sort of, you know, calming down, just sort of getting back to the normal sort of sea level of psyche <laughs> from the high, it's very important for me. So actually, after concerts is, is a wonderful time to practice. So you're practicing night and day, literally. Does that constant state of having to practice get frustrating after a while? I mean, it, it's also a pretty solitary existence if you're spending most of your day and night either in a practice room or in a dressing room while you're on the road performing. Does all that time and energy spent practicing impede on your life at all? No. I, no. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, I am doing what I like to do. Mm. Practicing isn't really so much a requirement for me, but it's an interest. Uh, it is a requirement because, okay, if I have a concert schedule the following week, of course, I need to be prepared for it. So it's a requirement because it's according to my plan to accomplish what I planned. But doing what I planned is a pleasure for me. So it's not like I'm frantically practicing because I need to get ready and I must get. It's not a sense of distress First of all, it's probably not for tomorrow. It's not for next week, but it's probably for something in a couple weeks or a couple months or even a year later. Uh, and I do, I think, after 40 years, feel very much at home in dressing rooms. I do get comments. It's like, I'm so sorry I have to spend the entire day here backstage. And I'm sorry, you're a hotel. You know, can we get a day room for you or whatever? I'm like, no. I actually really like being in the dressing room. And people look at me, you know, with this unbelievable look, but it's an honest truth. I grew up, this is my living quarters. Dressing rooms, backstage, it's my living quarters. I go to the hotel to sleep, to rest. I take a walk. Um, I go to the bookstore. I love going to cafes. Um, but it's all from the base that I have in the dressing room. You were born in Japan. And your mom, who's a violinist, was your first teacher and really your inspiration to pick up the violin in the first place. She had the wherewithal to move you from Osaka to New York City for the training in order to really cultivate your talent. When you came here, you didn't speak any English. You're moving to a completely new place as a young child. Was that terrifying to you or was it exciting? 
Oh, I think it was very exciting. It's absolutely exciting to go to New York. I had been at the Aspen Music Festival the previous summer, and I had made some friends. We had met people who were also living in New York. So in New York, I was essentially reconnecting with some of these people, which in itself was really special. Um, the idea of going to a music school, which I hadn't done in Japan, being able to meet kids my age who are also playing instruments, who are pursuing musical studies, I was very excited. And going to a, going to you know elementary school in a different country sound, sounded like a really cool idea. I think the fact that I was able to come with my mother. Um, and that I was able to go to a regular school and just take in English, the new language, in a very organic way like right. that. They say that, you know, this 10, 11 is like the cutting point where kids still learn the language as newborns are learning to acquire language as they grow. Um, so the language itself... Yeah, okay, I got really tired after a day of school for the first six months or so. And my mother helped me a lot uh, in trying to understand some of the instructions and the textbooks and all that. But, yeah, it kind of was in a flash. Mm. I, was, I had integrated into the school very quickly. And in terms of your development, you start the violin at two and by six, you're already performing Paganini Caprices, which are some of the most technically challenging works ever written for the violin. When you're able to do that at six and you face other challenges in your life, like riding a bike or math, is there an expectation on yourself that you should be able to do anything because you've already accomplished the impossible? First of all, I started to take lessons. I think it was more close to four, not Two, I, I think definitely my sense of self, my self-esteem was, uh, they were very healthy because I was playing the violin mm. and I had the sense of my own world because of it. So by when I was seven, eight, I also had this feeling that hard work pays off, that mm. I practice, 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 and I can do it. What I can't do through practice, I can achieve eventually. That I had a track record in my mind that some things can be accomplished through hard work. So I think that gave me even better sense of self-esteem, uh, discipline. It's not shooting in the dark when I practice. Mm. So working studying or whatever it is, you know, music, not music. Yeah, there's an expectation, absolutely, that I can do it. I want to share this experience with you that I had upon first hearing your playing. I was in the car with my parents on the Long Island Expressway, and we were all listening to the radio. Someone was playing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and I vividly remember my parents arguing over who they thought it was performing it. My mom was saying, oh, it sounds Russian, so it has to be somebody like David Oysterok. And my dad was saying, no, it sounds like Perlman or Isaac Stern. 
when the concerto was over and the announcer said that this is the second album of a 15-year-old Japanese girl named Midori, they were floored because in that moment, you shattered the notion that you have to be Russian or you have to be a man or you have to have life experience past age 15 to make this music sound alive or authentic in some way. But you did that just using your, the experience that you had. When you approach a piece like Tchaikovsky, for example, do you try to make it sound Russian somehow? Is that important to you or do you just play it the way you hear it? It's a very interesting question that you're asking because we're talking partly about style, right? And of course, I asked myself the question, what makes Bach sound like Bach, in my opinion, or, or Mozart or Tchaikovsky or Shostakovich, whatever. That's a very fundamental question that we have to ask. Whether you put it in terms of the nationality of the composer, the passport, maybe that's not exactly the same question. I do definitely, however, think about the characteristic of the spoken language. So in that sense, you know, I'm not trying to make it so that Tchaikovsky sounds Russian, as in what we might think of passport slash nationality slash form of government. But yes, there is something that's related to the language. And I certainly wouldn't say that you have to have the same passport as that composer in order to be able to understand that music. But it is important to really get to know that composer as a person, as a human being, including the language. Well, you do that very well and have for a really long time. You know, I can only imagine that being a world-renowned soloist for as long as you have would take up all of your time and all of your energy. But at the height of your recording and performing career, you established a foundation called Midori and Friends. It's a program that brings music education to the underserved communities in and around New York City. What inspired you to get so involved with music education in the middle of your growing and very successful solo career? This was something I wanted to do, to bring music to those that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to do so. And also having had the experience of seeing different cultures and starting to get an idea that there's a whole world out there that is so large, so amazing. It was really daunting, actually. But I really, really, really wanted to do this because at that point, I already knew that music had given me so much. And I wanted to share that experience. And very quickly, I learned that because, you know, the educational systems in the major cities in this country, it was going in the direction of eliminating arts education. And of course, growing up in the fields in the late 80s and early 90s, my colleagues, my older colleagues, Mr. Stern, you know, Bernson, they were talking about this. This was a great concern. This was the topic of that time, of that period. I knew that I needed something more than just one person, me, going in to a random school here and there um, and playing for a group of school children in order to be able to 
bring about a systemic change um, in order to be able to ask my colleagues to join, to really become active in trying to actually reverse a trend, I needed an organizational structure. So first and foremost, I wanted to bring music and I wanted to share this joys of music and what music can do. Music has a capacity to inspire, to calm, console, to excite. For me, it opened doors to curiosity with history, with different languages, different cultures. It may serve as a gateway to the outside world if you're confined. And those are just some of the things that music has done to me. But also, I'm not talking through me and friends just about classical music. But from the very, very beginning, I saw the wealth of diverse communities within New York City, different traditions, different musical traditions, that music wasn't just about classical music, it was about people. And when we learn about different cultures and about different traditions, we start to actually ask questions about our own culture, why we think the way we do and why we react sometimes the way we do. And to really understand that the diversity that offers wealth and richness in this world. One thing I see that makes me a little proud, perhaps, is that so many of the younger musicians now have really taken this activity, this work that they can be doing in community engagement as something so important that they've realized how important, how rewarding, how precious this is. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.